Chris Brown and welcome to episode 6 of Radicals in Conversation in-house, the podcast series from Pluto Press produced in collaboration with Bookhouse, an independent bookshop located in the heart of Bristol. Every month alongside our regular show we're also sharing an episode that's been recorded on location in Bookhouse as part of their in-house events programme. These events feature authors of some of the most exciting radical non-fiction that's being published today. They also, unsurprisingly, put on events with fiction authors as well. As it's the last episode of the year, we thought we'd do something a little bit different this time and feature one of these events on the podcast instead. So this month's episode was recorded on the 30th of November. Darren McLaughlin from Bookhouse interviews Robin McLean, author of the new short story collection Get Him Young, Treat Him Tough, Tell Him Nothing, which was published by And Other Stories in 2022. Robin worked as a lawyer and then a potter in the woods of Alaska before turning to writing. Her story collection Reptile House won the 2013 BOA Editions Fiction Prize and was twice a finalist for the Flannery O'Connor Short Story Prize. She's also the author of a novel, Pity the Beast, which also came out with And Other Stories in 2021. Throughout the course of the event, Darren and Robin discuss her background as a union worker and activist, her choice to live in politically red states in the US, and the ways in which her writing grapples with themes such as the frontier myth and the American psyche. They also talk about her writing process and the comparisons that her work has drawn to literary heavyweights such as William Faulkner and Toni Morrison. Get Em Young, Treat Em Tough, Tell Em Nothing is of course available to buy online or in store from Bookhouse. Just head over to bookhousebristol.com for more information. So without further ado, here are Robin McLean and Darren McLaughlin on Radicals and Conversation in-house. So I was contacted by the publicist from And Other Stories Publishing to ask if we would be interested in hosting an event with Robin, who is here on my left, the author of Pity the Beast, which came out this time last year, November last year, and Get Him Young, Treat Him Tough, Tell Him Nothing, her new collection of short stories, which has just come out like a month or so ago. The kind of publicity that we received about Robin makes her work sound very interesting and exciting. And it is. I can tell you now that I've read the books. <laughs> very interesting and exciting. A lot of people, quite a lot of people are comparing her to Cormac McCarthy. I don't know if anyone's ever read Cormac McCarthy, but I can see the comparison. But I'll ask Robin how she feels about that comparison when we're in, in having our discussion. I've taken stuff over your website, but why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself and where you come from? Um, all right. So, hi, everyone. I'm Robin. I'm an American in your beautiful city, and I'm really honored to be here. Um, I'm a fiction writer, pretty much only fiction. I love nonfiction and um, all other kinds of writing, but I pretty much just write fiction. I was a lawyer. That's what we call it in the U.S. Uh, and then I was a potter you know, making pots for a long time. And then uh, I always tell people that my career went sort of money-wise from lawyer to potter to writer, but my fun went from lawyer to potter to writer. So, because uh, being a potter is quite fun, uh, but writing is quite adventuresome to me. And um, I think having been a production potter, cups and bowls for many, many years in Alaska, I lived in Alaska, um, it made me want to write just for myself. And that's what I do. And uh, I don't know if any of you guys write in this group, but I'm real interested in 
method, how you achieve um, effects in writing, this, this beautiful communication with a stranger over time and space. And I'm real interested in how to find ways to do it, almost more so than subject matter. So um, I was a lawyer, I was a potter, now I'm a writer. I live in a remote part of Nevada, right now a high plains desert, which probably if you drove from here to London and took that space, I live in a valley about that big with about five people in it. So there's way more people in this room now than I could easily see in a month if I don't go to town. So um, I'm a country bumpkin. I just got lost today in your city, which is fun for me. And it's really, really fun to be here. <laughs> Thank you. Your first short story collection, Reptile House, won the 2013 BOA Editions Fiction Prize. And you were twice a finalist for the Flannery O'Connor Short Story Prize. But now, like you've now just had these two books been issued in the last couple of years. so. Yeah, I guess my first question is, you've done several things as you've alluded to. You've been a lawyer, you've been a potter, and now you're a writer. So what has drawn you to become a writer? How did you kind of make that transition and why? Well, uh, I don't know. I have no idea why someone writes or I don't know how someone actually makes a story. Um, I think it probably has something to do with the processes that dreams arrive from, the unconscious runs world of fiction. I think it's not a super great way to live. You know, right, being writer is not easy. You know, people think that you're crazy or you're not making enough money or, or things like that. And I've been able to manage my life by keeping my life kind of small, as small as I can, and going off into the hinterlands where I've lived most of my adult life in, in very remote places in the U.S. I think being a lawyer was a, a way of sort of training your, your mind a certain way. And then being a potter is a way of training your body in a certain way, because you make it sort of through muscle memory. And then maybe writing is somewhere in between those mm. two things. So do you think that the, uh, the artistry and the craftsmanship of, of being a potter has contributed towards your, your writing in some way? I do, because um, that sort of repetition and failure, you. You mess up the pot, they fall over, you see how that happened. And if for any of you who write, there's a lot of failure. <laughs> there's a lot of, you know what you want, and then the way you put it down doesn't actually work. And then for me, I rewrite, 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 I'll rewrite until it feels right to me. Not good, but correct for that line, that paragraph, that chapter, that that story. Mm. It's very much a physical response mm. when you know you can stop mm. or pass it on to someone else. It's interesting. If you listen to writers or you read interviews with writers, like different writers have different ways of describing the process and how they react to things. And I think for some people are visual, mm -hmm. some people are auditory or like something, there's something about music or the musicality of the writing. But it sounds like to me like there's something physical something kind of like hands-on about your writing process. Yeah, I think of it that way. I think of the stories, I think of them as sort of objects or little sculptures or a vessel or an object. Um, a novel is much bigger. Uh, I, I always thought of uh, a story as something small enough that I could hold the whole thing in my brain. By the time you are done with writing a short story, you basically have it memorized. <laughs> you know where everything is. 
with a novel, you can't do that. So that was a big, big problem for me that I had to solve mechanically. But I tend to think of things sort of methodologically or mechanically. And then if you pick a storyline, um, I think of humans as, as we know, humans are narrative creatures. We operate through story. So I tend to pick stories that are, have a quite simple through line mm -hmm. and then allow the elaboration to happen. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was going to ask, you've touched upon it. Do you prefer writing novels? You've written your first novel, but like you've written a collect two collections of sort stories now. So do you have a preference? And what differences do you feel there are between them as forms? You've sort of touched upon that a little bit already. Does anybody here write short fiction? Any short fiction writers? Yeah, so if, if it is here the way it is in the US, if you write short fiction, everyone's always asking you where your novel is. Do you get that? Mm. I mean, you say, I only write short fiction. That, that's what I would have said mm. maybe seven years ago. I only write short fiction. Mm. I'm a short fiction writer. And people just keep asking you and bugging you and driving you mm. crazy. <laughs> and um, the forms are, I had somebody say, well, you just write a longer story, <laughs> which I thought was not helpful <laughs> at all. They, they're just bigger containers. Mm. I think of a short, short fiction as a very small mm. sort of magical object. And uh, a novel can, I can now understand why you would write a novel. You can mm. get a lot done in a novel, but mm. it was quite, quite a transition for me mm. to go from one to the other. Yeah. It's interesting because these days in the world of publishing, short story collections are seen as not very commercial. Like, because like <laughs> short story collections are seen as like they're things that are not going to sell that Don't well. get it. Don't <laughs> obviously, one. obviously that's not the case in this instance. Obviously this is Obviously yeah. everyone wants this yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's interesting yeah. just because like, if you look at like a hundred years ago, most writers made their money from writing short fiction and the novels were the, the thing that didn't make as much money. For example, F. Scott Fitzgerald became very wealthy on the back of writing short stories. Mm -hmm. So it's just interesting how that's kind of reversed commercially. Well, I think even sooner than that, I mean, in the US you have these, Raymond Carver, Kurt Vonnegut, you had these big short fiction writers who were publishing in the New Yorker, the Atlantic, Harper's and making their living that way, you can't do that anymore. Mm. Definitely not. And people will say, oh, well, it should be, it should be that way because people's attention mm. span is, is shrunk. So people should be reading short fiction more, but I think that that's not the case because I think a really good short story is very complicated. Mm. And so you have to pay close, close attention to it. Whereas a novel, you're, a lot of times you're just well, what happened? Well, what happened? Mm. Well, what happened? And you could just follow it that way. So in, you're saying like the short story is a more kind of carefully crafted and intentional literary form than a novel, because with a, lot of, a novel, I suppose a lot of the writing could just be like filler or background noise. Well, I mean, it could be. Any of those things could happen. I just think that's the reason why the people who say, oh, people, everyone should be reading short mm. fiction, why aren't they? I think that's the reason. Mm. Mm. I think they're wildly complicated novels. Mm. I have written one. Mm. Um, and very straightforward mm. short fiction, mm. too. Mm -hmm. 
And how, how did you come to be working with your publisher and other stories? Well, as you may know, you folks over here have wonderful indie presses. What happened was I had two books. I had both of these books. What they, because of how people view short fiction, my agent in the U.S. pitched the novel first, and she pitched it to Jeremy Davies, who was at that time pre-COVID at Fair Strauss in New York. Big, fancy literary press in New York. And he really, really wanted the book, and he could not talk his editors into it. Their brains went, p -p -p -p, you know, didn't work for them. It was too, it's very nonlinear, and so he had to let it, let it pass. And then, which was super sad for me, because if you get Ferris Strauss in the US, like you get a job at Princeton or something. And um, I cried when that happened. But I started stalking him online after he, <laughs> he got laid off. A bunch of the Ferris Strauss people during COVID, all these editors got lost during the layoffs because New York is the center of publishing in the US, probably the world, and bookstores were shut down. There was just this chaos in New York City. Everyone's kids were home, and he got laid off. Even though he's picked Pulitzer winners, Booker Prize winners, he got laid off. So I just started stalking him online, and he popped up at and of other stories, which had co-published some work that Ferris Strauss would publish something in the US and then and other stories would publish it in the UK. So he got snapped up by and other stories. So we resubmit to him and then they took it right away. Mm. And then they we said, Oh yeah, we have this collection too, and then they took that. So it was a dream come true after months of thinking, I don't know if it was like this here, but a lot of writers in the United States, um, their books were basically lost in space because of COVID. Mm -hmm. They just, they submitted, it was rejected because they weren't taking those books then. And once a press rejects your book, you can't resubmit to them. Mm -hmm. So it was very, very tragic. And I thought that's what's gonna happen. And instead, that's what happened. <laughs> and I'm here now. <laughs> so it was a, a very, very happy ending and uh, a wonderful press that, that cares about what they produce and very respectful of writers, which you think, oh, well, that's normal, but it's, it's not always normal. And it's just been wonderful for me. Brilliant. Well, regarding the novel, your work is very expressionistic. I've seen it described as, which I think is a good term to describe your work. It's very edgy, it's gritty, it's very rooted in nature, most of it. It's very physical and indecorous. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Um, I like that one. So in Pity the Beast, there are sections of the book written from the perspective of the future. It's like a Western, essentially, where it's just mostly taking place in like the, the kind of American West. I won't spoil it by giving too much detail. I don't think you're going to say But there are sections of the book which are written from the perspective of a visitor from the future who is witnessing the landscape and cataloging the flora and fauna on Earth. And there's also sections of the book which are written from the perspective of a pack of mules. So it's quite incongruous, it's quite kind of like complex. And I suppose I just want to know what about your artistic processes, like how you came to do that. It's very non-naturalistic, I suppose. There's naturalistic parts of the book and then there's like these other elements that come in, these kind of sci-fi or fantastical elements. Well, you guys read Westerns, watch movies, watch Westerns. I don't either. 
Hmm. I don't I don't like westerns that much. I think they're kind of boring. Hmm. They're sort of formulaic to me and, and sort of black and white. And if they're wearing the white hat, you know, mm. they're good. If the black hat, they're bad. It's dull mm. for me. But I, because I'm a short fiction writer, I had sort of arrived at a story that took place on a farm with horses and people wearing cowboy hats. And so I thought, oh, well, I guess I'm writing Western. I've written space stories and city stories. I mean, I'm agnostic on subject matter. And so I found myself writing a Western, but I found myself sort of chafing against writing a traditional Western because that's been done. There's a lot of them, lots of good ones too. It's an American story. I'm interested in the American mind. Um, the American myth of the Western is, in my opinion, quite powerful in the entire world and uh, should be pushed back against. So I just found myself writing one and then being unsatisfied with just writing a main straightforward narrative and so then the, then all that stuff starts <laughs> happening. And then you, then you start wondering whether you can get away with it because it has to hold together for at least some readers. So then it becomes a challenge of, of method and so that's kind of how I arrived at that mm. form. Okay, the, the reason that I've got Chris here from Pluto recording this discussion for the podcast, there's a podcast at Pluto Press. They come and record some of the events that we host here at Bookhouse. And there's a podcast series called Radicals in Conversation. And Pluto are a, mainly a political nonfiction publisher. And I thought I'd ask Chris, do you want to come and record this one? And like, partly the reason for that is like, I, when I was reading about your background and your history, it says that you have been a political activist and a union organizer. So I was kind of like, well, maybe that kind of fits in with the sort of political work that we do. Maybe you can just tell us a little bit about, about the background of that, like your work as a political activist or a union organizer. Yeah, basic troublemaker, mm -hmm. pretty much. Um, well, I'm, as I'm interested in, in the American mindset and I, I do love my country and I have huge problems with America and the American <laughs> methods of, of operating. And I, I live in a place where I'm politically opposed to pretty much everyone who I know. And I, I've chosen places to live where I am in conversation with people who we disagree with on most things. So obviously that's a personal preference of some kind. But when I lived in Alaska, Alaska is a, is a new state when you think of it from a human industrial sort of non-indigenous perspective. And it's a resource extraction state as is much of the West, as is much of the US, if you read Annie Prue's work um you know she's she sort of breaks this apart with bark skins i don't know if you're familiar with that which is sort of the history of north america via the logging industry which i prefer to say is trees it's about trees and um so i lived up there and you live in a place and it's this constant war of resource extraction i mean in some place like this i don't know but i feel like a lot of the stuff that people are dealing with in, in American West happened many, many hundreds of years ago here. Maybe it's starting again, and there's probably lots of forms of that, but it's 
virgin, virgin, you know, land in, in a lot of those places. And so I got involved with a lot of environmental fights in the community and sort of, um, it was just pretty much constant, but also those environmental fights meld into community fights about democracy and how it's really working and corruption and capitalism and <laughs> imperialism and colonialism and all of those things that are happening now. You know, if you live in Alaska, the fight to open the Arctic Refuge where the Gwich'in people live is what happened in westward expansion. It's just happening now. <laughs> so you'll have people who say, oh, we did really bad in the 1860s, but we really would like to open that refuge right now. So it's a cognitive dissonance that's happening that you have to deal with currently. So that, that's what I got involved with there. And then when I went back to grad school in Massachusetts, our grad school was unionized, which is maybe something that's common here, but it's not that common in the U.S. And I had been a lawyer, and so I got a job as the grievance coordinator for a 2,300-person labor union where, you know, a lot of the graduate students there had come in post 9-11, and so they were very restricted of how they could work and run their lives. They could basically not work on campus, so their visas into the U.S. to work and get their their graduate degrees was absolutely 100% reliant on how they got along with their professors, so their professors could be pretty harsh. Mm. <laughs> so anyway, that's, that's what I spent my time doing when I wasn't writing mm. or when I wasn't teaching. I did some teaching at UMass also. So that's my, mm. you know, somebody, we, you have to raise hell. Like everybody has mm -hmm. to raise hell a little bit mm -hmm. or else we're gonna <laughs> go down. In the UK at the moment, the UCU, which is like the university union, is currently on strike. So there's picket lines today. There was some a few days ago as well, which I was on. So yeah, that's, the fight is ongoing right yeah. now. I was going to ask, following on from that, I've seen Pity the Beast described as a feminist Western. Mm -hmm. Do you agree with that description? And would you say that, is your writing political? The way I think that writing works is that you, your writer's job is to observe the world and then it filters through your body and comes out with pieces of you out. And so I'm a feminist, so it comes out that way. Um, I think people call the feminist Western because women are not victims only. They do bad things, <laughs> they have agency. It's also been called an eco-feminist Western I think because the landscapes and animals are not background, and it's also been called the product of a deranged mind. So <laughs> I take all of those. Mm -hmm. But uh, women are a little bit outnumbered in the story, but they are quite potent about what's going on. So sure, mm. feminist, yeah, I'm a feminist. Like anything that I write mm. will be feminist. Mm. Do you think it is? To be honest, like I read the description, they said he's a feminist western. I was like, okay. The main character is a woman. There are strong female characters, but I didn't get the impression there was a particular feminist message no. about the book. I actually feel like your work doesn't really have many strong moral judgments about the, hmm. about the characters. You don't have goodies and baddies so much in your work. Like you present behavior 
which they're is all kind of, bad. You know what I mean? Yeah, there's like there's like <laughs> you just present you present. I I think you present kind of characters and their behavior in a sort of non-judgmental way. That's sort of the way I good. feel about it. Yeah, that's good. I like that. So I don't think it's reducible particularly to a strong political message like you're saying, these people are good and you should approve of their actions, these no, people are bad no, no, and you no, should no. disapprove of their actions. I disapprove of them all, yeah. pretty much. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> 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 but I mean, I don't want to leave the women out and um, there's a lot of sister stuff in the novel yeah. and people have asked me about that and I just say, well, you know, did they ask Steinbeck about that in mm. East of Eden or, you know, the mm. Bible? I mean, there's just all kinds of stuff with with women. I think, and a lot of times with feminism that you, you know, women are supporting each other so that you're not supposed to critique women. I mm. hope the women in the Pity the Beast are critiqued mm. because part of feminism is, it's open season, yeah. as they say in the United States. That, I mean, that, that that's sort of the impression I had. It's yeah. like... Women are neither morally superior no. or morally inferior to the men. No. They just are. Yep. Like, I like the mules. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I've never, it didn't occur to me the fact that you are putting nature and like animal life at the same kind of level of like interest or what have you as human life. I've no, I didn't think about that as a potentially feminist kind of way of writing, but I suppose. Now that you've mentioned it, I kind of, oh, yeah, I can see I it, didn't think it? of that ahead yeah. of time. <laughs> I didn't think of that. Hmm. Should we have a reading before we go any, any further? Yeah? Do you guys, do you have anything to say? I always like it when you guys talk. I was wondering, has your work been published in America? Oh, yeah. They have, the ones that under the stories are Yes. Yes, they have. They've been, they do definitely like my work. They've been unbelievably supportive, but... That I know that they were interested in a woman writing, especially starting with this, a Western in the American West as a way to sort of bust into the American book landscape because they're, they're quite well known on the coasts. You know, Yuri Herrera or, or a lot of the very political writing that they produce, the, the coasts of the U.S., they're right on that. The center part of the U.S. that you see on the political maps is all red, that's what they're trying to infiltrate, mm. and that's where I live. Mm. I always live in the red places, mm. and I'm interested in the red places. I'm interested in the overlap in the red places. Is that why you live there? I think so. I mean, it's, it's not something um, that I knew ahead of time, but um, I'm very disturbed by the, the things that don't make the sense about the American story, and I'm very fascinated by the frontier, as many Americans are, the sort of heroic aspect of the Western myth, but there's just a lot of it that doesn't work right, and I'm interested in that. And so it's very uncomfortable for me to be in places where somebody would say some of the things that Americans say or think or people who they vote for, but if you're not there experiencing it yourself, it's hard to, it's hard to cope with it from afar. It takes courage to live in it. Have you found common, common ground? Have you found yeah. that you've sort yes. of met them halfway? Yes, but it's, it's quite difficult. <laughs> mm. it's, it's really hard. But I, I think for, for my country, if people don't do that, then we're, we're, oh, it's done. Mm. I don't see how we could possibly proceed if we don't do it. And if you can't do it on a personal level, there's no way you're going to do it mm. on a 
national level. Actually, something I was going to raise with you is like the fact that you lived, you lived in Alaska, now you live in the Nevada desert. And I lived in New Hampshire too, which is quite conservative. Mm. So I guess like in your work, so like in your short story, but for Herr Hitler, which is the first story in this collection. Wouldn't you like to have a story? Such <laughs> <laughs> a crazy. <laughs> but yeah. for Herr Hitler, like one of the characters is kind of a neo-Nazi. Yeah, he becomes, he becomes radicalized, yeah. yeah. But the way that you portray him in the story is not like, you're not just writing this character to kind of like condemn. He's not just an alien character. You're writing a character who is a rounded human being who is a neo-Nazi, but is also someone who supports his wife, who is struggling with a serious illness. And then in another story that you, you wrote, um, Big Black Man, your protagonist is someone who's like a university educated liberal, who when he's talking to his mum, his mum is concerned about the fact that more and more black people are moving into the neighborhood and he's embarrassed by her old fashioned racism. And he's trying to say, be more enlightened than her. But when he goes out on a walk in the neighborhood, he feels scared and intimidated by the black people around him. And then he has some interesting kind of encounters with black people. And then you find out about something that happened in his past. So it kind of seems like you've shown like a neo-Nazi living in the wilderness, but showed him in a kind of human light. And you've shown a university educated liberal and you've sort of shown yeah, right. a white liberal and, and shown him with how uncomfortable he actually is about race and race and like the kind of racist tendencies within. So I just you know, complicating matters, complicating the kind of cliched perspective people would have about characters like that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what fiction is supposed to do. I mean, there's plenty of people out there who are gonna write PhDs and books about explaining this kind of person. Fiction writers are supposed to make things more complicated and more ambiguous and um, that's, that's my thing. Mm. So I'm imagining that based on where you live and your kind of understanding of the people around you, that when you're entering dialogue with those people around you, you're entering it with an awareness that they are thinking and feeling maybe very differently than you about the world yeah. um, and have very different political views, world beliefs. Um, experiences. And so I'm curious as to like how you enter those interactions, like in what state or like with what purpose. I, I imagine that I would have a kind of temptation to want to convince or like change the other, but I imagine that that would be absolutely exhausting. Wait, high five. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, I'm curious to know like in what state you enter those interactions, knowing that you're going to be speaking to someone very different to you? Well, by the time I've arrived and where I live now, I had lived in Alaska. And in Alaska, all of it's different. You know, you have different areas in, in this nation that I don't know exactly how they work. But Alaska has a very, very strong indigenous population. It's not enough to carry the vote oil drilling and stuff like that and then you have a very strong lefty sort of hippie um, and where I live now there's none of that it is hardcore right wing alien basically to what I believe about the world and so when I went there I said I will view myself as an, an alien coming to an alien planet I'm landing on an alien planet and I had lived in enough 
very remote places where I sort of had practiced, but easier, easier places for me, where I could just say, if I landed on Mars and walked out, would I get in a fight with everyone? Is that what I would do? And I said, no, I would not. I would look around and try to listen and kind of keep my head down and, and watch, which is, in my opinion, what a writer is supposed to do. Absorb, think, see, listen, uh, feel, respond, freak out quietly, <laughs> alone. Um, but degrees of success and failure. Um, but mostly I have tried to be a good person with these good people, because they are actually good people who, in a place like that where uh, we were talking about this a little bit before, where you're physically vulnerable, it's the desert, the high desert where there's no one around, you actually need your neighbors the same as if you were going out in a, a boat out there, a long way out. Um, you don't really care what someone voted for if you're in trouble out in that, that sea. And so that is the case for everyone in a situation like that. And I'm coming in as a newcomer and trying to be a good neighbor. I mean, this idea of good neighbor, people take care of each other. Truly, they take care of each other. And, and truly, it doesn't matter the color of your skin or your gender or your orientation. If you have trouble in a place like that, people will help you. And that is just a, an undeniable fact. And that is a beautiful fact, and that's a good place to start. And so I've gone into it as a struggle for myself, but that's where I've entered. And I think if we're going to try to get anything done in this world, I believe that there are different locations that people have to come at surviving together. But one of them is way off on the side and arguing and fighting and lawyers and going to protest. I'm all about that. This is also one of those places, I think. And then writing is something different. Like, I'm pretty rough as a writer. I'm not the same as the person who invites everyone over and cooks the dinner. And I don't eat meat. Everyone there eats meat. You know, they bring over a big cooler. Because it's ranching land. They'll bring a cooler. They just killed the cow, and they brought the cow over, and it's dripping. And they'll say, Robin, you want this? And I say, no. I mean, they're. It's, it's a sweet joke between us, and I think that if you can arrive at some sweet jokes, that's a good, good start. Mm. Mm. I had a question. So, yeah, you seem very, like, um, you know, it comes to things in a spirit of, like, understanding and, like, a real sense of, like, caring for those communities. But um, from, like, reviews I've read of your work, like, mm-hmm. um, it's often characterized as very, like, brutal, like, with, like, an edge of cruelty, mm-hmm. um, kind of underpinning everything. Mm-hmm. How do those two things... One is that how you would characterize your own work and how do those kind of two different ways of looking at the world interact with, with each other for you? Yeah, where does that kind of brutality emerge from? What do you kind of hope to accomplish with it in your work? And um, yeah, what's the effect you hope to have of it on the reader? Well, I realized after I've written a bit that I'm interested in why humans do bad things. That seems to me my subject matter. So in order to examine why humans do bad things, you have to have them do bad things, usually at the beginning of the story. (laughs) We call those like an initiating event. And so people are like, she writes really brutal things. Well, okay, but that's how you start a story where you want to examine that kind of stuff. It's very sort of clinical for me in that way. And I think 
someone could say, why would you go live in a place where you disagree with everyone? A good question. It's just, that's where I've gone. I've lived in, when I was in graduate school in Amherst, Massachusetts, where it's very lefty, it's sort of the Berkeley, if you know Berkeley of the East. That's fine, it's not where I wanna be. I just am drawn to places where I'm, I personally am uncomfortable, and so I, my writing is also goes to places where I am uncomfortable because fundamentally, I believe writing is mostly for you. You know, I am working out stuff about myself in my own writing, not that it's all, it's not autobiographical, but you, you only have yourself to, as your subject matter. You only have your own experience. And so that's the kind of writing I'm interested in. That's what kind of reading I'm interested in. That's what kind of films I'm interested in. I'm like, give me something hard. Make me work a little bit. And so that's makes sense that that's where I would arrive. I'm not trying to make it hard for people. That's just, what, what are you gonna do with your time? Like writing is really, really hard. There's nothing that's harder for me than writing. And so if you're gonna do it, you know, do it something that will actually achieve something for you. You can't go about this whole business thinking, oh, I'm gonna have a bunch of readers because that's actually very rare. It's really hard to get a publisher. Does that answer it, kind of? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just on that, when, you're, when your writing's hard, because when I was reading your short stories, because you were talking before about landscape and being like in the desert, you can see everything. But when I was reading your short stories, I got this like distinct impression that I just didn't know what was going to happen. Like yeah. kind of like kind of like Joy Williams, you know, like some yeah. work when I was reading that. It's like I love her. Like, lovely chaos and stuff, but like yeah. every page turn, I'm like okay, this is like I just couldn't <laughs> see the wood from the trees, as they say. Like I couldn't mm -hmm. see the landscape of it, which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering, when you're writing, do you do you know what you're going to get to, or do you kind of just like write, and then you arrive there? I really don't know, um, but I don't do that on purpose either. I mean, every writer does have a completely different method. There's no method except for yours. And um, I have a friend who says that you have to read my stuff really, really slow because somebody can just die in a sentence, and then if you miss it, you're like, what happened? But um, yeah, I, I think of it from a process perspective. I try to write kind of blind, like with blinders on. So you, you move through it and something will arrive and, and then you have to have very, very trusted readers who you hand it off to when you run out of steam. And then they say, do you see that there's this big thing that you haven't dealt with? And then you see it because they told you and then you go back in. I also think I write very, very simple stories. So the novel is the most traditional storyline that you could have is like there's a big kerfluffle in the town, someone escapes and it's a chase for 300 pages after that. That's to me is how narrative works in the human psyche is that if you have these signals of, okay, it's a chase, da, 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 then you can go wild. Mm. And I like the wild part. Well, I guess like Moby Dick is a book about <laughs> right, totally. hunting a whale. Which yeah, is, for a long time, <laughs> like a crazy guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it doesn't really convey like what's going on in Moby Dick and that kind of description. Mm -hmm. So I have another question on the back of that. Something about um, this process of handing your story over to readers mm -hmm. when it's quite fresh mm -hmm. um, and trusting that they will point out kind of 
your blind spots mm -hmm. makes me feel that there's like a lack of preciousness about your writing yeah it doesn't feel like a precious thing to, to hand something over when it's fresh <laughs> well you know it's it is sort of like your baby and what i tell writers if there are any here um is any of you have kids would you let everyone hold your baby you know, if you saw someone who dropped someone's baby, would you let them hold your baby? So you, ha you have to pick well. Mm. And, and I have a very, very sharp eye for, for that. But if you believe, as I do, that the unconscious is the most important, potent actor in, in fiction, um, then you absolutely cannot see it. I think of it sort of like, um, the unconscious is like a giant spaceship and you're in this little cockpit trying to like hold on to it as best you can, but you, you really can't. You're just training yourself to operate within that. If you've ever been in a writing workshop, there's a lot of things that happen where you'll submit a story and people will say, I do not understand why this is here, so you should cut it. And I'm against that. Uh, to me, if, if it's there, there's probably a reason why it's there, but you probably haven't articulated enough or made friends with it enough so you you have these people who are generous truly generous and and very very intuitive or smart and then they can say I don't know what that is doing there but it's it's not connected in see if you can explore that more or, or what is it so if you find someone who's like that you basically you want them to take vitamins and not smoke anymore <laughs> and they have to live for a long time because they become essential it's totally essential. There's there's people like this guy Jeremy Davies. Like he, I never want to have a, another book that he doesn't get to mm. touch because he would just ask me questions and it would immediately uh, produce just a whole open door for mm. me. Going back further into your creative process, I also wonder whether the environment that you live in where there is so much difference between everyone and you, whether that creates the kind of friction that's necessary for your creative juices? I think that I would probably be okay among sameness at another time in American history or world history. I feel quite an emergency situation <laughs> in the world right now. And then I feel like the US the way, the, how influential we are, and, and maybe I'm overblowing it, but I, I think that I feel an urgency about trying to address how Americans operate. I think that for me, the remoteness of a, a place where I don't have a lot of noise and I can take an idea and, and live with it for a day, like a thought, and then go for a walk with that thought and then go to sleep with that thought is how humans actually should be living because that is what we are evolved to live in. This, this noise and chaos is not really, I don't think we're evolved. I'm not evolved for it. And so I feel like these quiet places are essential for that part of my writing process. I mean, I've got an abundance of thoughts about the discord of my culture, Western culture, capitalist culture, imperialist culture, colonial culture, but I need the quiet badly. If I could get a Scottish island where I hear that they like want you to come there and live there, that would work fine with me. 
And if there was no one there, that would work fine with me too. But I'm still human, so you, you want to eat with someone and, and talk with someone or go to a movie or something like that. I think George Orwell had it nailed. George, George Orwell, George, he used to like spend six months of the year in London being social and then he would spend six months of the year in the Isle of Jura and just go and just sit and write on his own like in total isolation. That's the thing. It's not for everyone but there's a lot of artists, writers like that. Mm. So like J.M. Kurtzay says, not since Faulkner have I read American prose so bristling with life and peculiarity. (laughs) And I've seen your work being compared to William Faulkner, to Cormac McCarthy, to Toni Morrison, Flannery O'Connor, Dennis <laughs> Johnson, Donald Barthelm. So a lot of heavyweights. You're getting compared to a lot of heavyweight writers. How do you feel about that? It's fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm all about the fun. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, um, one of the things that doesn't happen much in the U.S., and I don't know if it happens here, is that... Um, those writers are all stylists. They're stylists. Mm. And people don't talk about style that much mm. right now. And I'm a stylist, mm. so I can sort of say, that's fun, and also understand it that way. Mm. With regard to Faulkner, <laughs> Comark McCarthy, they're both people who are writing very, very specific style-based which style sounds so surface, but it's also, to me, um, language, line level, it thickens meaning. And they're both orienting around rural America. Faulkner, of course, is a Southern writer. McCarthy started out as a Southern writer, but he moved to the West. And so he's dealing with the West. And to me, if you're dealing with the West, it's a very, very specific type of situation and and if you're going to deal with it straight on you're going to people are going to compare you to him so that's how i think of it has your work been translated it's about to be translated into polish while i'm really polish yeah Yeah. i'm really excited to be translated i think that's so exciting yeah i'm just kind of thinking like the french were so excited about william faulkner and like John Dos Passos and stuff like that. I could just see France going, <laughs> going wild for you. Well, the first paragraph of the, my novel is so crazy. And I think, I want to see what that looks like in Polish. Mm. That'd be very exciting for me. Mm. Interesting. So could you tell us some of your favorite writers, literary influences, or, or some of your contemporaries who you, you admire? Oh, okay. I always get blanked. Um, I love Joy Williams. Uh, I don't know if you know this guy, Nana Conway, Friday Black. Do you know that book? Mm-mm. Very long last name. Amazing book. Mm. Um, George Saunders. I mean, there's so many. I love Margaret Atwood. Mm. <laughs> I mean, what about non-literary influences? I mean, I I think for me when I write, I always have a lot of art, visual art, right? Postcards. I collect mm. postcards. So, you know, the deputy in the novel. You know, mm. he and I have a lot in common. And uh, I think visual art is very helpful mm. for me. Mm. I think of myself as a political activist, so I don't want to write just to entertain everyone. So I want the writing to be beyond the personal. I'm mm. not interested in personal writing. I hate to say that because a lot of people like it, but it's not my thing. Mm. I guess Georgia O'Keeffe came to mind. Oh, yeah, totally, I Georgia. I mean, there were a lot of 
visual artists mm. who, you know, Emily Dickinson, mm. George O'Keefe, uh, Miles Davis, um, people who are trying to deal with a method, they're changing. If you, I've spent a lot of time at Ghost Ranch, which is where George O'Keefe ended up near there in New Mexico. And, and if you go there, you can see, do you guys know George O'Keefe's paintings? I mean, you, she painted these same mountains over and over. She said one of them that God said if, if she painted enough time, she could have it. And it's right there, and it looks exactly shape-wise the way she painted it, but you can see the way she did it color-wise. She's saying, I am going to impose myself onto this mountain. And so this idea of non-realism, I think people have such an easier time understanding that with the visual arts, and I do not think of myself as a realist writer. I'm a non-realist writer, but people maybe a generation ago would accept that, but realism has just taken over fiction, mm. and I'm fighting against it. Mm. So do you want me to read from the, read from the yeah, collection? Which, yeah, but yeah, why don't you read from the collection? All right. You guys know a little bit about me now, and you know that I'm interested in humans doing bad things. Just get it out there right on the beginning. And so this story is about an auntie who kidnaps her nephew when he's very young and steals him from her sister, takes all of her sister's money. It happens right at the beginning. And then they spend his entire youth traveling around the United States. You have this moral breach that occurs right away. And then um, the story is really about this young kid who grows up over the course of the story who's got to figure out what is going on what's going on with me, what's going on with the situation, what's going on with this place where I live, and maybe even what's happening on my planet, which is what I think all humans should be doing, and maybe what all readers should be doing. So I'm just going to read from a place where Theo, the kid, is starting to figure out there's something wrong, because this is a trusted person who kidnapped him. Okay. They camped at Bannock and toured the old courthouse. She explained horse thieves and capital punishment, lynchings and Robin Hood. He could hardly believe it. Jupiter was low in the sky. They drank hot chocolate. They sent a postcard to his mother from the Little Bighorn where warriors had crouched behind rocks with arrows. Theo studied the address dropped the card in the slot. Are we bankers or something? He said, since they did business at banks in various states. She explained safe deposit boxes, hedge funds, offshore accounts, white collar crime. She kept cash in a sack beneath a spare in the trunk. She kept the keys no matter how he begged to hold them. They drove up into the mountains. They turned in at every Lewis and Clark pullout, where the Corps of Discovery had almost starved, where the Corps of Discovery had gone without water, where the Corps of Discovery had trudged through chest-deep snow behind their Shoshone guide, Old Toby. How could they really trust him, Theo said on a sandy <coughs> bank. He kicked a charred log from some old fire. 
They roasted the horses one by one. He got back in the car. They camped on the low low. Trees drowned out highway noises. The ridges stood steep and dark. The fire was warm and good. Wind moved only in the top branches. Sacagawea saved them, yes, Auntie said. But she was kidnapped as a girl. I know, Theo said. We're kidnappers, smallpox spreaders. Theo cooked a hot dog on a stick. When you were little, Theo said, who was faster, you or mom? I was faster. But, he said, she broke both legs once. Yes, but I was faster before that. The trees were black and close over the tent. The moon tipped on the east ridge. My mom's tuna casserole's really good, he said. My tuna casserole's excellent too, she said. I'll make it at the next motel. The fire snapped with Theo's grease. My mom's tuna casserole is the best, he said. No one can beat it. The rabbit appeared in the firelight, big ears turning. Do we have enough money, he said. Your mother made sure we had plenty, she said. What if the bank with our money caught fire? It's in a computer, she said, not a building. What if the computer got a virus? They'd fix it. What if the tech guys got the plague, he said, spitting up blood, arms falling off. Bats banked and dipped around the smoke. Tech guys would come from the next town over. His hot dog had split down the side. He pried it into the bun. What if every town got the plague? He said, all America, corpses all over. They'd fly helicopters in from Canada, she said, full of tech guys. What if the whole world got the plague? He ate, coyotes yipped, the moon hoisted over the ridge and stood there. What's that weird pot in the trunk, he said, under all those papers? It's an urn, not a pot, she said, don't touch it. Wicker lampshades at yard sales, wicker baskets at farmer's markets brimmed with tomatoes, onions, piles of beans. The cane is hand-twisted, she explained, tricolored, her father's favorite, some empty or holy or eaten or crushed or burned. Fences were made of license plates or skis nailed to split rail. Grassy knolls, trails of tears, bison and missile ranges, golden roller coasters in the desert. He saved his allowance in a sock. She peeked out a steel <coughs> restroom door to watch him hide the sock in the trunk beneath the sack of cash, beneath the spare, smoky breath at his mouth. He hogged the covers every night, stacked all the pillows behind him. He thinned and ate and grew in sudden growth spurts. He paid close attention to the dials and pedals, sat behind the steering wheel when auntie pumped gas. He learned to pump gas. 
He learned to use the jack, lift the lug wrench, fit the tire. When he was 12, they began to shop in the men's sections. His voice was cracking. She bought him deodorant. I use deodorant too, she said. We have a lot in common. He dropped the drugstore bag on the bed. He peeled his t-shirt off in the motel mirror. His shoulders had widened. Muscles were forming. He snapped off the deodorant cap, set it on the TV, raised his elbow to his ear, rolled the deodorant stick across his armpit, crushed and recrushed each crinkled hair. She laid back on the bed, looked up his beautiful spine, the low spots between his ribs, the golden fuzz on his nape. What else do we have in common, he said. I can't think of anything. The letters to Santa finally stopped. He brushed his teeth with door shut. One New Year's Eve, they watched fireworks in Anchorage, dandelions bursting up and gone in the jet stream. They'd taken the ferry from Bellingham to avoid customs, driven up the ramp and parked on the car deck. They slept on the upper deck under the heaters. Fun, she said, and he said, fun. As the ferry slipped up past Canada, fish camps and trawlers, mountains spiraled to glaciers hanging clouds swirling around highest peaks. In Fairbanks, the motel pool was glassed in. He carried her around the no running area. She kicked in his arms, Theo, Theo, before he tossed her in the deep end. She floated by the drain, let chlorine soak into her. She'd had no idea such joy existed. At the Grand Canyon, he said, I want to see Thomas Jefferson. They camped at Mount Rushmore, but that wasn't good enough. In North Dakota, they were stopped at a roadblock. The trooper flashed a flashlight in the window. Where are you from? said the trooper. Bangor, Ohio, Auntie said. What's going on, officer? I can't give details, said the trooper. Just tell your son not to stare. Theo blinked in the flashlight. She's not my mother, Theo said, but the trooper was already at the next car. She pays. <laughs> that was Robin McLean and Darren McLaughlin on Radicals and Conversation in-house. You can find out more about the book on bookhousebristol.com, along with details about their other forthcoming events, many of which will, of course, appear on this podcast series in due course. If you enjoy the show, then please don't forget to like, share and subscribe, rate, review, wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll be back in January with episode 59 of our regular panel show, so until then, I wish you all a very restful holiday and a happy new year. Bye.